Hey, kids, it's Malcolm Daynar coming at you, letting you know that the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast is producing an in-depth retrospective for the film Popcorn. Gosh darn, I think that was done in 1991, and I played Bud. Yeah, I played Bud in it. 1990, that was a long time ago. Anyway, Popcorn is a cult classic, and this episode is a can't miss, so I want you to go download it now and have a good time. Butt out. live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting mouthpiece of the Southeast, Brandon A. Lane bringing you a new edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. Pull back the curtain, hit the lights, and roll out the red carpet, because this month, the Rant Army is going Hollywood with an in-depth retrospective for the 1991 lesser-known cinematic slasher known as Popcorn. You know, Popcorn is a personal favorite of mine, and as always, I will do my due diligence to properly convey as to why throughout this retrospective, but thankfully, I do not have to go it alone, as evident by the incredible introduction you heard at the top of this episode from Bud himself, the great Malcolm Daynair. Totally blown away to have his involvement this month, so I want all of you out there in the Ran Army to track him down on Twitter and give him a follow at Malcolm Daynair. Let me spell that out. At M-A-L-C-O-L-M-D-A-N-A-R-E. Thank you so much, Malcolm, for that introduction. Now, once you followed him, you got to do the same for us. The Rants from the Black Lodge podcast can be found on social media at Rants Black Lodge. Subscribe to the podcast on one of the many platforms we're available on, including Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Visit us on our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. And for the love of Cthulhu, buy a t-shirt or a mug from our web store at rantarmy.com. we got a great show coming up, but first, here's some messages from our sponsors. Next Generation Wrestling brings some of the most talked about and star-studded professional wrestlers from around the world. Based out of East Tennessee, NGW is becoming one of the most sought-after independent wrestling promotions in the past four years. Witness NGW Live or on demand on the High Spots Wrestling Network streaming app. Follow us on social media platforms at NextGenTN. Premium Friday the 13th custom made hockey mask down there in Tennessee by Lance McKinney. Find him on Facebook and Instagram over at Mask by Lance. Go order one now, boy. Happy New Year, Rant Army! And what better way to ring in the new year than by celebrating the 30th anniversary of one of our favorite. Forgotten slashers, roll out the red carpet, pop open some champagne, because tonight, the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast is going Hollywood with an in-depth retrospective for 1991's Popcorn. 
Now, before we get into the technical info, we got to talk about the title. Now, the 90s were a shifting point in more ways than one, but specific to titles of films, they became more generic uh, to kind of try and reach a wider audience. Now, I'm just saying, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this doesn't... This doesn't leave you with a lot of doubt as to what you're getting into. However, popcorn is pretty damn generic in the grand scheme of things. But it's also released under a few different titles. We'll go through them. Phantom of the Cinema and Skinner. The question being, is popcorn too generic or does it work for the movie at hand? And I can only speak from experience. As a kid seeing this on the video store shelf, the name popcorn kind of grabbed me. But, you know, going forward, a lot of 90s movies, uh, especially, you know, Scream, Scary Movie, which is more of a comedy, but you get the point. I Know What You Did Last Summer, they have sort of a vague, catch-all kind of title that casts a wider net to get people more interested. Popcorn probably falls into that category, but it does sort of allude to things in the movie, a lot of which were cut out. Uh, there was an entire subplot that had to do more directly with popcorn, but that got excised from the film, but I do enjoy the, the title and I really like what it brings to the table. Whether or not Popcorn had a title that caught the attention of moviegoers, that's debatable, but the film's VHS cover is a different story. I think we have gravely erred in the past of not properly conveying how important VHS cover art just was to horror fans of our generation. You know, the Kids of the 80s who were kind of coming to fruition in the 90s. And particularly in how those covers got us to watch particular movies. You know, the, the art sold the film. The artwork of Popcorn, to me, is as classic as anything of the era. I mean, it's more evocative of the 80s than it is of the 90s, which became what I call the Scream poster, which is just faces photoshopped together. Halloween Resurrection, I know what you did last summer, they, they all kind of fall into this purview. But Popcorn has a beautiful piece of artwork. It's uh, a skeleton holding a face on a stick. Purposely or accidentally, it looks a lot like our, our heroine of the film, Jill Shellen, who plays the role of Maggie. And there's just a nice little, the you know tear coming down from the, the eye. It's, it's very cool. And I love just the, the pop art, 1980s neon colors. Just a great poster, great VHS uh, box art. It made me have to rent this movie. Let's let's uh, let's get into the technical info, and then we'll talk about why this movie is uh, often forgotten, and with some reasons as to why it should, but a lot of reasons why it shouldn't. Popcorn was released February first, nineteen ninety one. We're coming up on the almost a, a month to the day of the thirtieth anniversary of its release. It was produced on a budget of, I have no fucking clue. I looked everywhere and couldn't come up with a single, you know, figure, you know, made up or otherwise. I reached out to Mark Harrier. I reached out to Jill Shulin, uh, Malcolm Denair, who thankfully gave us that awesome introduction, but I, I messaged him and he never messaged me back. So I'll probably get that information after this podcast is released. If so, I will add it into the description below of the episode. But as of right now, no clue. It's opening weekend gross, $2,563,365, which may be great or may be terrible. We really don't know. Worldwide gross, $4,205,000. Now, I did find out a little bit of research that when it uh, got released on VHS, 
by 1993, it had made a couple million dollars. We're looking at like $6 million total, and that's not taken into account the beautiful, beautiful 1080p Synapse Films uh, Blu-ray, which uh, I own. This is a must-have if you love this movie. It's got a great uh, making-of documentary. You'll find out some things that, uh, well, actually, you know what? Fuck that. You're listening to this podcast. You're going to find out about them right here. It has a IMDb score of 5.8 out of 10. And uh, that's probably right where it should be if you are a regular person. And we'll explain as to why I hold it in higher regard as we continue on. But let's look at Rotten Tomatoes. They have it at a 37% and with an audience score of 41%. Probably for your average uh, film goer, right where it should be. Uh, Google users were way more kind, and they usually are, at 85%. But the only rating that means anything with this podcast is the Rant Army review in of itself. So, I put up in our Facebook group, A simple question, a poll with two options. Popcorn good, popcorn bad. And in a landslide victory, popcorn comes out with 100%. Put this into perspective, though. Uh, With previous movies we've done, the, uh, the numbers of people voting have been way higher. So the people who voted for this movie, they're deep dive horror fans. And there weren't people that voted no just because it wasn't a movie they never heard of. So I have to think that it probably was more of like, well, I'm not going to vote no for a movie I've never heard of. And Popcorn, let's just be honest, is a little under the radar. I fully expect this episode to do way less downloads. But it is a movie that has stuck with me for 30 years. And I want to share my love with it as we continue on. Uh, On Fat Tony's hit list, shout out to Fat Tony, couldn't be here tonight. Uh, We're in the midst of a winter weather spell and you know Tennessee is a harsh mistress when it comes to weather conditions so we're knee deep in snow right now and you know he lives farther away than he really should be driving in this so shout out to Fat Tony we miss you but anyways on Fat Tony's hit list we have five I am not the purveyor that a horror movie needs a lot of kills in the slasher genre to be good but we're in the thick of you know the last brunt of those slasher, you know, renaissance, and I think that's going to be one of the determining factors and why a lot of people are blasé towards this film. And another knock against it, and Stank Dick Eddie's Titty Tally Zero. The great titty drought of 2020 has spilled over into 2021. How can this be? I am ashamed of this film it needed more going on you know if you if you don't have blood and guts you gotta have some boobs this is some listen uh popcorn unfortunately continues our tea drought from 2020 into 2021 but let's not dwell over the cesspool that is the year we currently live in let's go back to a simpler time of 1991 and check out the stiff competition for popcorn people under the stairs freddy's dead Child's Play 3, Silence of the Lambs, Howling 6, Puppet Master 3, Sometimes They Come Back, The Pit and the Pendulum, Critters 3, The Unborn, The Borrower, Class of Newcomb High 2, Subspecies, Highway to Hell, Dolly Dearest, and a personal favorite of mine, Nudist Colony of the Dead. Our 
top five is going to be skewed simply by the fact that a lot of these movies were released direct to video, so we don't have theatrical stats for them. Let's just go down from number five, and there's automatically an asterisk, which is popcorn with 4,205,000. Coming at number four, we have Child's Play 3, which raked in $20.5 million. Coming in at number three, People Under the Stairs with $31.4 million. Coming at number two, Freddy's Dead with $34.9 million. And it's a runaway success with $272 million. Just shy of 273 million, we have Silence of the Lambs. You have to realize that this popcorn being in the top five in any way you chop it up is is going to be sort of a, a miracle because this movie was a VHS rental. This wasn't something that people were clamoring to see in the theaters. Unfortunately so, because that's the entire point of the film. It's a love letter to the movie theater. Now, Popcorn may not be a household name like its slasher contemporaries, but the film has a dedicated cult of fans. They've kept the flame alive for years well beyond what anybody involved thought it would be, you know, thought it would last. So let's tell the story of 1991's Popcorn. So let's go from page to screen. The story of Popcorn begins with the pairing of screenwriter slash makeup artist Alan Ormsby and director Bob Clark, who you may best remember as the man who brought you two wildly different Christmas classics in A Christmas Story and its much darker counterpart, Black Christmas. Uh, in 1972, the duo collaborated on a tongue-in-cheek, super low-budget zombie film called Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Uh, they reunited two years later for another low-budget horror film called Death Dream, but our story, well, it really starts in 1981 when Bob Clark wrote and directed an incredibly successful sex comedy called Porky's. We love Porky's here at the podcast. On a $2.5 million budget, Porky's raked in a huge profit of over $136 million. So the discussion of a sequel was immediate. In the pantheon of great sex comedies, you have to throw Porky's in the you know top five. Animal House, uh, Revenge of the Nerds, and I know a lot of more contemporary film people would say American Pie, but no, we're we're sticking strictly to the those original films. So I love Porky's. Uh, in fact, uh, Fat Foot Scott and Stink Getty and I maybe it was it may have been the beginning of this uh, or last year or the year before. We got together, we watched Porky's and Revenge of the Nerds just because we hadn't seen them in quite a while, and we constantly refer back to these movies. Uh, and uh, Hair Pie from Revenge of the Nerds is a very popular thing with us. So we wanted to watch these movies, and they really do hold up. I just, I, you have to, you have to give credit where credit's due. Uh, this low budget movie that no one expected to be a hit. You know, fucking man, $136 million at the at the box office is nothing to shake your nose at. That would be a monstrous hit now for a movie on that budget. But fucking then, man, that's that's ridiculous. That's an incredible, incredible haul at the box office. Bob Clark uh, wasn't interested in doing a sequel to Porky's, at least at first, mostly because he was headlong in developing what would become a Christmas story. Which I'm sure, uh, you know, here we are, you know, January 1st, 2021, you've probably seen Around the Clock on TNT, TBS, or whatever, you know, channel on your television or streaming service has just been playing it ad nauseum. 
which is this is ironic because the the studio wasn't interested in a Christmas story, but they were very interested in Porky's too. Uh, both parties agreed to make Porky's too with the provision that Bob would also get to direct a Christmas story. So it was sort of a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Uh, with the added load of now directing two movies in the same year, Bob Clark would turn to his former horror movie collaborator Alan Ormsby to pen the script for Porky's Two. Now, at this point, I'm sure you're you're thinking, like, what the fuck does this have to do with popcorn? So hold your fucking horses, we're getting to it. First, back to Porky's. The original film had an awesome cast of characters, including Pee-wee, Tommy, Mikey, Tim, Meat, and Billy, who all returned for the sequel. And of all those characters, I just named uh, Billy, who is played by Mark Harrier. Now, remember the, his name, because he's going to come back into play a little later on. Anyways, Porky's 2 and A Christmas Story were both financially successful, comparative to their budgets, but neither of them were blockbusters in, in the way that the studio was hoping for. They weren't million dollar mo- or $100 million movies. Uh, Bob Clark would cont- continue directing comedies throughout the decade, including Rhinestone with Sylvester Stallone and Dolly Parton, and a personal favorite of mine, Loose Cannons with Gene Hackman. Oh, and a little guy you're probably familiar with by the name of Dan Aykroyd, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted. <laughs> and, you know, the decade of the 80s, it gave birth to a new phenomenon called the VHS and the Video Rental Store, which gave, let's just be honest, it gave new life to lesser-known films. And all of a sudden, Bob Clark's back catalog of horror films, well, they began to gain a little bit of notoriety and definite steam going on into the 90s. Uh, because of this, uh, Alan Ormsby, he got the itch to work with his old buddy again, so he began writing the screenplay for what would become Popcorn. Ah, there was one problem. Bob Clark didn't want anything to do with horror movies anymore. So the, the, the burning question, should Bob Clark have directed Popcorn? It, the easy thing for, for me would be to say yes, just because simply his track record was incredible, especially Black Christmas the archetype for what became the slasher film. Arguably, you know, doing it uh, as good as Halloween, just not having the catch fire in the way it did, and didn't have an art iconic look for a killer because you never see the killer in that movie. But all the same, all the tropes and things that we love about slasher films, a lot of it came from Black Christmas. Now, the slasher film had evolved over that decade, and this was a little more self-referential and having a little more fun and playing into a little more of the comedy stuff. But I still have to think, like, what would this movie have been if Bob Clark had been behind the camera from the get-go? It probably would have gotten, by now, it would probably be hailed uh, simply as a, a minor classic, simply by him being involved more directly. But we'll continue on, and we'll see how the story plays out. It was decided that Bob would produce the film, and directing duties would go to Alan, a decision that would be ultimately not exactly pan out, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it when we talk about Alan a little later on. Let's read the synopsis of Popcorn to get a little more of a viewpoint of what this film is all about. What could be scarier than an all-night horathon? A group of film students... Students find out when they stage just such an event at an abandoned movie palace. In addition to the three features, they discover a bizarre short film called The Possessor, whose creator killed his family and set the theater on fire after its first showing. Maggie, Joe Sheldon from The Stepfather, has been having frightening dreams that seem to be concerned to The Possessor, and the festival proceeds, the nightmare comes true for her friends and be stalked by a mysterious killer 
Has Lanyard Gate survived to continue Possessor's deadly legacy? We'll you just have to watch the film to find out or continue listening to this retrospective. Bob Clark's heir apparent and a longtime collaborator steps into the director's chair. But first, let's talk about his writing credentials. Alan Ormsby wrote a lot of things you're probably familiar with. He wrote uh, Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things, which I mentioned previously. He also did a movie I really like called My Bodyguard which has a young Matt Dillon playing the villain. Uh, he was also in a movie you may have seen called Wild Things with Bill Murray, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted again. Uh, he wrote Cat People, uh, which is a remake, sort of an updated remake of The Island of Lost Souls. I didn't like it at the time. I've kind of grown to love it. It has sort of a weird European flair to it that a lot of films were kind of flourishing with at the time. Uh, he wrote Porky's 2. Great movie. Not as good as the first one. He also wrote The Substitute with Ernie Hudson, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted three times. And most confusingly, he did rewrites to Disney's Mulan, the animated version, not the, the new one that you know came out in 2020. How, how does the writer of Porky's get that job? I have no idea. Um, I think it's at this point... I need to explain why this seemingly average slasher film holds such a special place in my heart. Alan's script is basically a love letter to William Castle, but more specifically, uh, the gimmicks that William Castle used to enhance and promote his films. The framework of Castle's methods were so popular with myself and Fat Tony, who I wish was here to talk about this, it almost became a business Let's go back in time, maybe about 15 years ago. Fat Tony was uh, about to get some money and was looking into, you know, starting a business. And he had this great idea in our hometown. There's this been, it was a second run movie theater for years called The Paradigm. And it had sit there collecting dust. And he wanted to open what he called The Grindhouse. Now, mind you, this is pre-Grindhouse the movie. I just put that in perspective, um, but you know we were definitely in tune with the with the whole schlock cinema kind of stuff. But he wanted to do a second run movie theater slash a coffee house, and the the pusher really would be like during the day it'd be just a place you know you know for college kids to come and do you know write papers, use the Wi Fi, get their coffee, and uh, they'd show like you know second run movies. But then on the weekends, for like Saturday night, late show, they were going to show classic horror films, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, things of that nature. And this is, uh, I was working for the newspaper way before I ever started working at uh, my current job of Haunted House. But I had just, actually I think both he and I had just gone to Ripley's Haunted Adventure because I had some passes, uh, because they always sent us press packages uh, around October, and I think in like November or December, he and I went to Ripley's Hard Adventure. This is way before I ever worked there. We drove back. I, I told him, like, man, this would be such a cool thing. And I actually kind of cited popcorn as an inspiration. Like, wouldn't it be cool to, to do this, but like have a movie kind of tie in? And he kind of then and there told me, like, well, you know, I had this idea about, you know, buying the the paradigm show on second, you know, second run movies and, and horror shows on the weekend. That would be so awesome to have William Castle style interactions with the thing. I get really excited about this. He and uh, another another uh, 
fr- mutual friend Josh Jesse, they they actually go and they look inside with the realtor or whatever. And I mean, the chairs are still there, and there's like film reels. Which I mean, he uh, there was just a bag of like film reel trailers, and I actually have a couple that he you know gave me that he just kind of snuck out of there. But obviously, it it wasn't meant to be. The money wasn't there. But we kind of have a place like this in our backyard, you know, barring the fact that COVID has kind of ruined the world. But once we get things up and going, I mean, Central Cinema in Knoxville, Tennessee, right in my backyard, has kind of filled the void that we were looking for a place like this. A place that would show movies that weren't as well known and a little more skewed to, you know, our our kind of people. You know, kind of punk rocker heavy metal, weirdo freak kids that don't have a lot of uh, things to do other than get into trouble. We could funnel that stuff. And Central Cinema has completely hit that gimmick that we absolutely needed. Now, they haven't had any actor interactions that I'm aware of, but, I mean, they do a lot of things that... They have a... Okay, here's a perfect example. They did a Ninja Turtles uh, 1990 film showing and they had a pizza party tie-in with it and that was just a fun little gimmick to like get people added value and in the door and that's all what William Castle was about so let's talk a little bit about William Castle's gimmicks that he implored to get people in the door so in 1959 he did House on Haunted Hill which was filmed in Emerjo which we had a, a big skeleton that would drop from the ceiling and it would scare the audience there's some parallels uh, directly in this film. We'll talk about them as we go along. 1959, same year, The Tingler, which was filmed in Percepto. They had these vibrating motors. Uh, I think they were actually from military aircraft. It was something that they used to like vibrate the frost off of propellers. But uh, there's been a long-standing myth that that he used uh, like electrical uh, electrical shocks to you know to fuck with people when really it was just like a vibrating thing on the seat. 1960, he did 13 Ghost, filmed in Illusiono, which was kind of a 3D gimmick when really it was like uh, glasses. It was actually more like a like a lens you would look through. It wasn't like glasses, but it would allow you to see things on the screen that weren't there to the naked eye. And uh, 1961, he did Mr. Sardonicus, which allowed the audience to vote on the fate of the villain. Basically, this is the first alternate ending to a film, but they allowed the audience to vote on it, and they, they never voted for the sympathetic ending to the, to the villain, Mr. Sardonicus. But there actually was one, and the very, very narrow chance that somebody might want to see that, or you know, the majority of the audience. Still very cool. When watching Popcorn, it becomes pretty clear that Ormsby had an affection for not only the gimmicks of William Castle, but also the films he produced. So when it came time to direct Popcorn, well, he prioritized the films within a film. And we'll talk a little bit about those. Uh, There's Mosquito in 3D, which was filmed in ProjectoVision, which had a giant mosquito that flies over the audience. This uh, comes into play in one of the death scenes, so it has a nice... Uh, macabre kind of element to it but it, this is the type of thing that would be if you had a theater this would be probably hard to rig up but if you had a rig permanently to do something like this it would be awesome but if you're doing this just for like one movie this would probably be a huge waste of money it, it's a funny thing like the the thing comes down and you have members of the, the cast and crew they spray it with like a giant thing of <laughs> bug spray and there's a giant fly swatter kind of thing it's fun 
movie number two is The Stench in Aroma Rama, and uh, this is just a your classic smell interaction. Uh, in 2011, there was a, a full moon movie called Evil Bong 3D that utilized a scratch and sniff gimmick, kind of in the same vein. In popcorn, uh, they just have a basically a duct that you know, pours out stench, and it's like a fog stench. I work in a haunted house, and I will tell you right now, the stuff is oil-based, and it will get on your clothes, and you don't want that shit on you because it is like getting sprayed with a skunk. It's hard to get out. Plus, what you also don't realize, because it's oil-based, if you breathe that in over long periods of time, it gets in your colon, and it lubes your colon. So you shit yourself. Definitely not a situation you want to find yourself in. The most fun of these uh, of the three films within a film is the attack of the amazing electrified man in Shockoscope. I love this. This is the, my favorite part of the movie um, as far as the like the theater gimmicks. Uh, harping definitely on the Tingler, but being a little more evil in its, uh, in its methods. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about the, the film within the film. It stars Bruce Glover, which if, if you look at the guy, the death row inmate who gets the you know, electrified or whatever, you're, he's going to look familiar to you. And if you can't place him, well, he's Crispin Glover's dad. And man, they look just a fucking like. He was a lot younger then, but if you even see a picture of him now, he just looks like, <laughs> like an old, creepy Crispin Glover. If you're not familiar with his body of work, probably his biggest claim to fame is Mr. Went in Diamonds Are Forever, the James Bond film. It was actually the final official appearance of Sean Connery in the series in like 1971, I think. Which is, it's kind of notable because he's the first gay Bond villain. And uh, it's not really expressly shown, but there's definitely some uh, hanky-panky going on between uh, him and his counterpart in the film. Very, very quirky actor, and he brings a lot to this. So I can definitely see why Alan was so interested in these films within a film. The prioritization of the films within the film would ultimately see Alan removed as the director, unfortunately. Uh, reportedly, he just didn't care about the film beyond these gimmicks. Was He was really slow in getting things filmed, and he was not very well liked by the crew. Not so much by the cast, but he wasn't well-liked by the crew. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that they were on a time crunch and he was just kind of taking taking time, taking to do, getting these things right. And when you're working on a low-budget film, I mean, we don't really know for sure because I don't have a budget, but I am going to assume this is a very low-budget film. Uh, time is money, man. So for what it, to add these things up, and he got booted. I gotta say it, though, man, the segments he directed are fucking awesome. I have conflicted feelings about the man. I don't know him personally, but the question being is like, should he been given a chance to fix these issues before he got kicked? They were about three weeks into filming before he got booted. That may not sound like a lot of time, but that's, there are a lot of films that film in their entire movies during that time. And when you consider that, like these are just 10 minutes of footage that you actually see in the film and the, the way less, I'm just being, generalizing there but that that's not good whichever side you fall on when it comes to alan ormsby the rest of the film well it was directed by another man there's another man from bob clark's past remember when i told you to remember Bar mark harrier well this is why aside from a couple of short films this is mark's only directing effort which begs the question 
how did Mark get this directing gig on Popcorn? Uh, to answer that question, we got to change directions to his acting career. He acted in a lot of television over the years. The Practice, Murder, She Wrote. Uh, Freddy's Nightmares, he was actually in the pilot episode, which our good buddy Mick Strawn worked on. And more recently, he's had a reoccurring role on the Amazon Prime series, Bosh! But that doesn't explain why he got the directing gig. How does he know Bob Clark? Well, he was Billy in Porky's and its sequel. If Bob Clark's producing a film, would you would you place it in the hands of someone with zero experience just because you're friends? Well, evidently, by all accounts, that just seems to be what it was. Now, I'm sure that like working on a film, you can't help but like kind of soak up the process by osmosis, just being around it and working on these low-budget films, you kind of learn the tricks of the trade of how to do something quick. But man, I just, I just don't understand how this came to be and why he thought like, well, fuck, I'll, I'll give it to Mark. And that's not a knock on Mark because I think he does a pretty damn good job. Um, despite the fact that on paper it makes no sense that Mark would be qualified for the job, he does such a competent job and it was clear that he took the movie very seriously when he jumped on board late into the production he had this to say about jumping into the film three weeks into filming one of the first things we reshot was a big group scene with basically everybody and it's the scene where they're in a classroom and they're announcing that they're going to have the horror fest and i'd seen the footage and it was lazy. It was just horrible. So I go in, and we start to shoot, and I'm getting the same performances. And I'm looking at the cast, and I'm just, I'm just meeting them, because they've already been there, and it's like they're on vacation. I finally stopped and said, you know, you may have some impression of what you're doing. That's different than the reality. Let me tell you, I've seen this, and it really sucks. So that was their first experience with me. And that scene turned out way better than it had been. And that's sort of how it went for the rest of the movie. When I started doing research on popcorn, the narrative of how things unfolded was like a fucking mystery novel with twists and turns all the way through. When I got to Mark, I thought I kind of had it plateaued where it was going to be a little more straightforward from that point on. Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> In fact, it just gets more convoluted from here where... There seems to be a disagreement between Mark Harrier and the actors on who actually directed the movie. I mean, not between Ormsby and Harrier, but between Harrier and, dramatic pause, Bob Clark, who wanted nothing to do with directing the movie. <laughs> now, if you watch Popcorn with a discerning eye, you can tell the movie had a troubled production. But personally, I never picked up on a Bob Clark stylistic vibe and i'm pretty in tune with his his directing credits so i just had no idea that there was this looming shadow of bob clark over mark harrier now that may explain why he was able to get things done in not having any previous experience in being a film director mark has confirmed that bob was on the set and he was involved with indecisions but he retains that he 100 percent directed popcorn he had this to say about working with uh, with Bob. Bob didn't want to be the director, but Bob is Bob. I soon understood what Toby Hooper must have felt with Poltergeist. Now, assuming that Mark indeed did direct Popcorn, I have to think that it's kind of a waste that he didn't have a career beyond this. There's a lot about the production of this film that we'll continue talking about it as we go on, but if he indeed did direct this, 
he did a fucking great job. And there is a stylistic difference between the movies within the movie and the rest of the movie. But that's not to say that, like, there's a drop-off in quality. There are a lot of shots in this movie. There's one in particular where you have Jill Shellen's character of Maggie chasing the Lanyard Gates character. And the the foreground is framed and there's, like, this thing on the wall. And it's like an angel or, or something. It's like an ornament, decorative wall art. It's in focus, and then you have, you know, the as it goes back, it's in it's a little fuzzy. You have that shot, and then kind of intercuts. There's little flourishes like that throughout the movie that I really enjoy. So I have to think that if, if Mark indeed did direct the movie as he said he did, he had a good cinematic eye, and it's kind of a shame that he never got to do that again, especially considering that this movie could under different circumstances, have been a, you know, a franchise. I'm, I may be in the minority in thinking that, but I, I personally really would have liked to have seen this movie uh, spurn a couple of sequels. I think they there's, a, there's fertile ground for possibilities here. Now, we've spoken enough about our creative team. Let's move on to our principal cast of characters, specifically our female lead, Jill Sholin as Maggie. You've probably seen her in quite a few things, including... Wes Craven's Chiller, which was a TV movie. Uh, the Stepfather, great, great film. She's uh, Terry O'Quinn's stepdaughter in that movie. Great performances on All In. One of the one of the best elevated horror slasher films of all time. Uh, she's also in When a Stranger Calls Back, which I know a lot of people fucking hate, and I don't understand the hate for it. For a fucking TV movie to a sequel to a movie that a lot of people don't remember anything past the first scene, it's pretty fucking good. And I know the critique is that like nothing happens in the movie, but they're just looking over the fact that there's a lot of character development. They actually took time to write a lot of character development in that movie, and it gets shit on because it's not exciting. Well, that's because you have ADD, and you probably watched it when you were holding your motherfucking cell phone. Ah, but on to something else. She was in Babes in Toyland, another television movie, with a very young Keanu Reeves, who is the you know the biggest star on the planet right now. Her and Keanu would briefly date. Uh, she's also in Cutting Class with a very young Brad Pitt. Her and Brad Pitt were briefly engaged. So Jill Sholin, she got she got around, and I can understand why. I fucking loved her back in the day. I've always had a thing for dark-haired women, and she had just this innocent girl next door look about her fucking bangs. Ugh! So, you know, ten-year-old <laughs> chub watching this back in the day. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, um, she's also in uh, The Curse 2 and uh, Phantom of the Opera with Robert England, which is a pretty good movie. I think that's directed by Dwight Little, who uh, did Halloween 4. We've done that back in our uh, archive. Check it out on JuicyCritter.com. Big, big fan of that movie. Now, by the time Jill had did Popcorn in 1991, she'd already kind of earned Scream Queen status. But it begs the question, like, why isn't she remembered like Linnea Quigley or Brink Stevens or Michelle Bauer, Debbie Roshan, on down the list? And unfortunately, I mean, I hate to even say this, but I think it's because she was two girl next door. I think it's because she wasn't naked. She wasn't the, you know, doing... Linnea Quigley's horror workout or, you know, one of those Jim Wynorski movies that are just basically born for and threw in some some horror elements uh, throughout the thing. When you look at like the big the big names, not like the B screen queens, but like Jamie Lee Curtis and Barbara Crampton, they all have a lot in common is that they 
they played a little bit more of the reserve girl. But the difference is, is that Jamie Lee Curtis went on to become a huge A-list star. So her position was locked in. She got she used horror as a platform to jump to bigger things. And Jill, she uh, she took a detour and became, you know, like focused on more of like family stuff. And it's unfortunate because I think she's terrific. Like acting wise, she's heads and tails above a lot of the women I just named. I, me personally, my, my favorite uh, Scream Queen, B-movie Scream Queen, Melissa Moore from a Jim Wynorski-directed film called Sorority House Massacre 2. And she has the most gratuitous, no-point-necessary uh, shower scene. And she actually interrupts a shower scene to have her own shower scene. It's just, it's great stuff. But Jill, Jill was a legitimate actress and... I feel like that we don't remember her, or when I say we, I mean the general populace, doesn't remember her in the same way because she was a little more straight-laced. And that's exactly what makes her great. Her her credits were earned through acting and not through exploitation. Now, I love them both. I would fucking bend over backwards to see Linnea Quigley bend over in those pink panties in Nightmare, um, fuck, uh, Night of the Demons. But Jill has something else that she brings to the table. It's not that one's better than the other. Well, I guess you could probably argue that the acting ability is better. But they both they both equally bring different things to the table that are enjoyable. She's just uh, the unfortunate recipient of a lot of, you know, dirty dogs, you know, horny dudes watching these movies. And probably some, uh, some horny girls, too, who... Uh, Wanted to get knuckle deep in, <laughs> in Jill Schoen. I reached out to Jill. I never heard anything back, which is a shame because I would absolutely love to, to speak with her about her career in horror. And she she has nothing bad to say about it. I, I can't say enough about uh, nothing bad about her in that regard because a lot of these women that use horror as a jumping off point, they don't respect the genre as soon as like the, you know, they can get onto a WB show or whatever, then you know, oh fuck, I don't want anything to do with that shit I did before. But she's never spoken ill of it. Despite the fact that Jill was in high demand, she wasn't the first choice to play Maggie, which I find fucking shocking. Uh, in fact, they cast an actress named Amy O'Neill. Now, you probably remember her as the daughter of Rick Moranis in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Now, by the way, um, you just got busted again because of that Rick Moranis guy. He was in Ghostbusters! So, man, we're going to overtime with these. Just, you just got busted this month. Amy filmed for a couple of weeks, but when the decision to replace Alan Ormsby came, uh, they also decided that Amy just wasn't the strong lead for the film that they needed. All of her scenes would then be refilmed with Jill in the role of Maggie. Jill had this to say about taking on the role. With all the scenes I was involved with, where it was just two or three actors, they would reshoot the master. They would reshoot anything that I was in, but when it came to close-ups, they never reached out for the other person's close-up. So they really had to be on the ball about the exact footage that they had from a technical standpoint. That quote speaks volumes. Two, th two things about it. It shows Jill's ability as an actor to jump into a role with very little prep was just immense. It also shows that Mark was talented enough, unbeknownst to the fact they'd never directed before, to match the footage that Alan had shot with his own in such a huge time crunch. I had no idea before doing research that this movie was sort of Frankenstein together, but now watching it, 
I can see. I can definitely see. But that's a testament all the same, because if I wasn't made aware of it, and especially with the haunting dead eye I put on a film, those things bleed through. I watched the movie twice. I watched it before, twice this you know past week. I watched it before I did my notes, and then I watched it after I had done a little bit of research. Second time through... Yeah, they're they're there, but they're still. It's not like they did a, a hack job in editing this thing together. It's as seamless as a film as you're going to get with the the way it was put together during the montage sequence, which you can actually see. There there's a couple shots with Amy, so she's technically still in the film, but yet again, till someone pointed this out, I had no idea because it's a shot like up in the balcony, kind of down with them, the audience, and they're taking the sheets off of the theater chairs. And yeah, you can see her, and she's sweeping and like pulling the stuff off. But until it's pointed out, she just looks like one of the kids. Because Jill jumped on the production later than the rest of the cast, she really didn't spend a lot of time with any of the other actors beyond Derek Rydell, Dee Wallace, and Tom Ballard. Uh, that being said, in subsequent years, she has been somewhat hailed as the savior of the film by the rest of the cast and a lot of the crew. Uh, Yvette Soler, who plays Joni in the film, she had this to say about Jill. I can't say enough about Jill. I was a young actress in the industry, and watching her, she was such a pro. But, you know, a young girl my age, but totally able to come into an existing situation, self-possessed, and just, boom, bring it. It was amazing. Now, I completely agree with Yvette. Jill is incredible. And I've been a big fan of her, like, most of my life. And I just really wish she would come back to horror. But mostly, I'm just glad that she doesn't look on horror negatively. That just makes my heart sparkle when someone you like isn't, like, shitty towards the things that they're known for. Because she could easily look back and be like, man, fuck, I was in Wes Craven's Chiller, which is a fucking turd, by the way. And I love Wes Craven, but it's not one of his best films. It's a TV movie, but it looks like something that would be in the dollar bin. And in fact, it is. A lot of times it is. Listen, we'll speak more about Jill when we get to Tom Villard's section of the retrospective. But first, let's talk a little bit about our other protagonist, bumbling as he may be. We have Derek Rydell as Mark. He's also in Death Wish 4. God damn right. <laughs> but he's also in a little na- a little known horror film called Night Visitor, which is kind of like The Boy Who Cried Wolf, but instead of Wolf, it's the it's like The Boy Who Cried Satanist Killing Hookers. <laughs> Five stars, check it out. Um, he's best known for his role in In the Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. This is just a f- fucking fun late uh, 80s teenage slasher movie. Um, More recently, Derek has actually written several episodes of Power Rangers. Isn't it funny how everybody kind of finds a way to get back into the the industry, you know, whether or not they're they're intended field. They they, they always find some way to stay connected in, so that's very cool. Uh, The character of Mark is sort of an odd one. He's played a lot for comedy, laughs, but the script goes out of its way to, to make us not like him. So, the very beginning of the movie, uh, Maggie shows up on campus, and you have the guy rush up on her, and he's very sexually aggressive with her. 
And he's basically like, listen, I'm horny. I'm not going to be around if you don't let me get dick deep. And this is all played for comedy, and it kind of falls on deaf ears with modern a modern viewpoint. And there, a lot of this, it was done in films like that. And just to, we mentioned Halloween 4. Halloween 4 has a love triangle between Brady and uh, the character of Rachel. You know, cops do it better. She's wearing the fucking thing. What is her name? Fuck it. I'm actually going to look it up because I've got it right here. Oh, fuck. What is your name? Kathleen Kenmont. Kathleen Kenmont playing um, Kelly Meeker. And there's a blooming triangle of love in popcorn that completely falls dead on its ass. Brady gets a redemptive moment where he's, you know, a stupid teenage kid, but he still gets to be the hero, and it feels earned. And I feel like that this movie doesn't do a good job with Mark. It is very funny. There's a kind of a running gag of him constantly getting the shit knocked out of him, whether it's like a door, you know, coming into him. Or the, the bearded guy who uh, punches him out because he shows up with his, his new love interest who very clearly is a bitch for the sake of being a bitch for convenience, but probably the type of girl who will, <clears throat> you know, let you do stuff <laughs> if you buy her uh, a tub of popcorn and a Diet Cola. <sighs> you know, I don't know. I, I feel like that him, he's, he's likable enough. He's, he's a really good actor, but I, I have to say... We have to address the many shortcomings of Popcorn, and I think the biggest of which is its script. I love all the bells and whistles. I mean, I really do. But Popcorn really needed a few more drafts to really hone in the characters and the plot. And we're going to tackle all the good and the bad as we go on. But let's start with the character of Mark. He gets his redemptive moment. I Like, why should we like this character? He's done nothing... But he he goes to this thing. He knows that Maggie's going to be there. So is he trying to like make her jealous by bringing another woman there? And and then but he, but then he goes out of his way to be super helpful to her because she's freaking out about Lanyard Gates. I, it just doesn't ring true. It just it seems like they had the framework and then they the details are just absent. I wish this movie had gotten. A couple more rewrites, which that's script writing 101. You never, your first draft is never going to be what you put to film. I don't know how many drafts that Alan did, but it definitely needed a couple more. Idea that he has prioritized the films within a film. If you watch those segments isolated, man, they're more well thought out than the rest of the movie. And that's a shame because you have a really good cast and if you tightened everything in, especially with Derek's character of Mark, you could have had something really special. I'm not saying throw out the love triangle. I'm just saying that it could have been done in a more compelling way or an alternate way, which I'll talk about later on as we get with another uh, character. <sighs> I wish I had more to say about the character of Derek, but he just isn't well-written. And uh, despite having a very charismatic actor to play. So I, I tip of the cap to you, Derek Rydell. I, I wish that you had more acting opportunities, but a few years earlier, you give this performance, even with the limited quality of the script, you probably could have spurned that out into an entire resume of slasher films. And 
and low-budget horror films. Our next actress requires no introduction, and if you're not familiar with her body of work, then you probably need to have your horror movie buff license absolutely revoked playing the role of Maggie's mom, or is it her aunt? Bum, bum, bum. We have Dee Wallace as Suzanne. Now, I'm not going to do a huge rundown of Dee's body of work. I'm saving that for whenever we do Critters or The Howling. But in all seriousness, if you don't know who v, uh, Dee Wallace is, get fucked. And I mean that sincerely. Dee, as usual, gives a terrific performance. But some strange occurrences surrounding her characters, her character have had me scratching my head for years. And this was doubled down when I rewatched it this past week. In the build-up to the horathon. Maggie has been having these strange dreams, and after she's shown the short film Possessor, um, she has a discussion with Dee's character about Lanyard Gates, who the movie leads you to believe is the villain. Dee's character, she knows what's up, and that scene where she's kind of playing into the dread in her mind that Lanyard Gates is still alive... Such subtle, great stuff. She's still acting, and uh, we kind of gushed about her, uh, me and Stank Dick Eddie, in the Halloween uh, remake that Rob Zombie did. She brings a humanity to the character, regardless of how big the role is. She's absolutely in tune with the tone of the moment. Now, this is a cheesy movie, but she adds a lot of gravitas in those scenes where you need the weight of the the horror to kind of come through. But there is an inexplicable use of paranormal activity in popcorn that just does not make any sense. So Suzanne shows up to the theater where they're going to have the horathon. I think it's called the Dreamland Theater. And she's going up and she sees the, the marquee. And all of a sudden, the letters start shooting out at the ground, and then a spectral visage of the word possessor comes up. There's an easy way they could have made this work, and they completely overlook it, because I think at this point, they're trying to sell you on the idea that something otherworldly and supernatural is going on, which is good, but when you get to the twist of the movie and you find out that nothing is paranormal is happening, it makes no fucking sense. And this is one of the things that sucks about this movie. I think they could have had it because Toby, spoiler, turns out to be the you know the killer. He's in tune with all these movie tricks. I wish that they had they could have had a little expository dialogue, or they could have shown him rigging these things in flashback, or I don't know, there, there had to be a visual way to show that these elements are being utilized with movie magic and not a paranormal way. I, I just feel like this could have been done so much better. And it, it brings up the, the question, like, should there have been a paranormal element? It doesn't make a lot of sense for the film at hand, but maybe they could have weaved little something in there maybe maybe the movie possessor does have some elements and maybe that drove toby who has legitimate reasons to uh to do the things he does which making him a sympathetic killer kind of uh adds a added layer of awesomeness to this film but maybe they could have done a little bit more with the the lanyard gates film like it possessed him to do these things and maybe he could have had a moment of clarity 
but still chose to do. I don't know. The paranormal angle could have worked. It just doesn't work in the film as is. When Dee's in the theater, she shoot, she shoots somebody <laughs> because we see their body fall to the ground just before, like, there's these arms pop out of the wall and they pull her inside. It's a great scene. Shot very well, by the way. You never find out, like, who the fuck did she shoot? Because no one, no one dies. Like, was she a terrible shot? And Toby, in the role of Lanyard Gates, just pretends to fall? Like, it's another one of those things that makes absolutely no sense. And plus, when you add into the fact, later... When the arms pull her in the wall, which is, that wouldn't make any sense because she's looking at the fucking body she just shot. So this is, it's convoluted and it it leaves a bad taste in my mouth because otherwise this movie has a lot going for it, but this just does not work. I have have to say that the the theater location, it sort of has an ambiance to it. I really dig it. I really like the aesthetic of the old creepy theater. It adds a lot of production value to what I'm assuming is a very low-budget film. However, the cast, in particularly Dee Wallace, was not fond of this location. She had this to say. The theater we shot in, in Jamaica, was a cesspool I don't know how else to say it. It was an abandoned theater, and you walked in, and it was quite obvious that homeless people used it to sleep and piss. So the entire film was shot in Jamaica, which, knowing that now, makes a lot of sense. Um, And it sort of explains some of the quirks of the film. A lot of the background actors are African-American. And I never noticed this before, especially when they come to the movie theater, because a lot of them are wearing masks and stuff. Um, not that this movie like needed to be whitewashed by any means, but it's a lot more noticeable that there are a lot more African-American people in this movie than normal. But there's one thing that absolutely sticks out like a sore thumb, and it always left me perplexed, and that's the, the music in the film. And there's two things in particularly that, uh, that stick out. Number one, during the montage sequence, there is this Saturday night at the movies... Do, 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 you know, and that song will be stuck in your head for fucking ever. It, it doesn't feel like a song that you would hear in the 90s. I mean, I, I fucking hate reggae. And I, I'm sorry if this offends anybody out there, but I fucking hate Bob Marley. <laughs> I hate Ziggy Marley. I hate the whole fucking Rastafarian bullshit. But this song is so fucking catchy, it will be stuck in your head for fucking days. I find myself humming it over this past week, constantly, like, just, it just, it's there, and I can't get it to go away. There's another song, uh, when they're letting all the patrons inside the theater at first, and they're playing a little impromptu concert outside, but then, this is another one of those things where, like, if they had done a rewrite, this might, they might be able to make a little sense of this. The band plays impromptu concert on stage to keep the the theater going audience occupied because the power has gone out and the reason the power has gone out is because Malcolm Daynair's character has gotten the shit shocked out of him with the you know the the theater gimmick we'll talk about the kills a little later on but it makes no sense how are they playing electric instruments on a stage with no power now a lot of this stuff probably doesn't bother everybody but man it fucking bothered me it bothered me so much that in my notes, I was like, what the fuck? What the fuck? How is this? And I was more indignant toward that specific scene than probably anything else in the movie. 
But it does beg the question, why would you be able to do this with no power? So take that or leave it. It bothers me, and I won't let that slide. Last of our principal cast, but certainly not least, we have our sympathetic villain, Tom Villard, who plays the role of Toby. Um, He's also in Charles Band's Parasite, a great uh, 3D film from the, you know, the the early 80s. He's in Grease 2, One Crazy Summer. There's also a little film called My Girl with Dan Aykroyd, who is in a film called Ghostbusters. Ah, you just got busted. I lost count. Uh, He's in Shakes the Clown. He's in Heartbreak Ridge with Clint Eastwood. And he co-starred in 46 episodes of a series called We Got It Made. I'm just going to say it. This is one of the best screen performances I have ever seen in a horror film. Tom Villar's performance is so multi-layered. He's incredible. He's likable. He's deliciously evil and, and heartbreakingly relatable. All the negative things about the script I can't apply to the character of Toby. With the twist that he's the killer, like it, it all makes logical sense. But they do such great manipulation to make you finally come to the realization that he's the killer but like along the ride you fucking like him they they go out of their way to kind of discredit him as being the killer because he he gets locked out of the theater at one point and i thought that was kind of smart um it doesn't make a lot of sense context but it was smart to do things like that to throw him off the scent and he's so likable he's so upbeat that you can't help but just latch onto this character aside from the fact that he looks like he's fucking 40 years old at the time, but I'm going to let that slide. Uh, Tom Villard, great, great actor. Um, His motivations as a killer are, there's more thought put into this than there probably was a lot of the other aspects of the film. So you find out that during the original showing of Possessor, where the theater was set on fire, well, Tom Villard was one of the survivors. And, well, the character of Toby was one of the survivors, and his body is horribly burnt, you know, and he's been in agony his entire life. He couldn't lead a normal life. He'll never be loved. He'll never be able to do things in polite society. And you get the revelation that Jill is, well, Jill Sheldon's character of Maggie is actually Sarah Gates, the daughter of Lanyard Gates, and she survives unscathed. And then you find out Suzanne isn't her uh, isn't her mother. It, she's her aunt. And this revelation completely recontextualizes the entire movie. But it definitely spits in the face of all that paranormal stuff we we had seen previously. Toby's motivations as a killer are interesting, and they're interesting just enough to put him over in the level of menace. But then when they need him to be, he's almost like the fucking Joker where he's getting the crowd hyped because they're going to re, uh, reenact the, the, the ending of Possessor because he needs revenge because Jill Shellen's character got to perfect life and he has been scarred this entire time. Is this more satisfying than it actually being Gates? And I'm going to say yes and no. The idea that like Lanyard Gates is this wraith that is uh came back from the grave to instill justice or be able to finish his film that's a that's a unique concept it's a little freddy krueger-esque which i think is what they're kind of taking and flipping on its head at the time in the 90s 
I think I would have probably for preferred that, but now in retrospect, I think this is such a better direction to go in. I just wish they hadn't killed Tom Villard's character because I really, I think the, the character of Toby could have been a, a franchisable character and all because of his incredible performance. I wanted more and we got just enough to keep me salivating at the idea. Every great slasher you know, has a niche, but there's a handful of lesser known movies that have killers that take on many identities. There's Happy Birthday to Me, which has a character you know, wearing a prosthetic face of Melissa Sue uh, Gilbert, is that her name? Uh, from Little House on the Prairie. And then there's a revelation. The whole time you think it's like, Melissa Sue Anderson, that's her name. And you think that, like, she's the killer, but it actually turns out to be her friend who's pissed off about reasons. And then there's Terror Train with Jamie Lee Curtis. And the killer, it's like a costume party on a train. And the killer keeps, like, uh, taking the costume of the person he's killed so he can, like, stay stay afloat and no one will know who the, the killer is. I, I love that. But Popcorn separates itself from those movies by leaning into that good old-fashioned movie magic. It's cool that he's able to wear the faces of these people, and it actually gives the actors a little bit more to do, because some of these characters are, you know, they don't, they're on screen very little, but when Toby takes their body, it gives them a chance to kind of be the villain for a minute. And it's probably a little fun to chew the scenery and have fun with Here's, here's the thing. I work in a year-round haunted house. I, I know about prosthetics. We don't use them very often because they're expensive. Foam prosthetics. And these that Toby is using, they're very obviously not latex. These things are silicone. Silicone is super fucking expensive. And to have these face castings and stuff, which, I mean, there is in the montage, you see they're doing face castings for everybody. So was this his plan to get the face castings and then he's able to pour it? But then all the faces are like in this weird like saline bath and I I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a lot like Dark Man where there's just enough reality to it to be plausible but not enough to be probable. I I still really enjoy it and I man the fucking man the makeup effects and popcorn absolutely incredible which just adds this adds to my amazement of how great Tom Villard in the film is when you take into consideration that unfortunately he was dying of AIDS and unbeknownst to his cast his castmates uh, director Mark Harrier had this to say about his revelation of Tom's diagnosis a week or two into it he came to me and said I have something I need to tell you I said okay what is it well, this is a very difficult role, and I'm going to give it my all, but I think you should know that I have AIDS. No one there knew it. It was at a time where this was, a, in fact, a death penalty, and you would not work if you were an actor with AIDS because they wouldn't hire you. You were uninsurable. He trusted me because if that had gotten out, who knows what would have happened. Tom was one of a handful of openly gay actors in Hollywood at the time, so he already had a hard time getting acting roles because of idiotic bigotry. And his diagnosis only, it not only ended his acting career, it, it also ended his life. And he passed away just three years after the release of Popcorn. Before we talk about his legacy, I, I want to duck back real quick to 
the makeup effects. The scene where he's giving basically what I call the super villain monologue. He has he's wearing his own face, but there's like the the sides are protruding where like the the ears aren't properly attached. That that scene could have been so goofy in other hands. The, the makeup effects are so tremendous, but the effects are only half of the equation. He brought those appliances to life because of the way he moved with them. Just enough to give them movement to show it's not properly attached. But when he's given that supervillain monologue, I, I legitimately got fucking shivers. He invokes the misery of the situation he's in about being burnt and having having to do this. I, it's not practical, but I'm willing to overlook the impracticality of it all because it, it gives him a such a dire motivation to instill his revenge. He's had years to think about it. I don't know. I like the idea of like a, a movie fan being so entrenched in his, in his hatred to use his special effects to be able to just to blend in. But it just, it goes, it spits in the face of the character in a positive way of what you'd perceived him previously because he's such a likable guy that when he turns heel, to use wrestling terminology, it you, you want to throw trash at him. It's the it's the Bash of the Beach 1996 Hulk Hogan heel turn moment. You, you're like, fuck man, I loved you. I love you, man, and you've turned your back on me. But when he's giving that monologue and he's in that makeup, to me... That's a that's a fucking what you put on your acting reel. This is what you use to give jobs because this is such on paper could have been so bad, but it's elevated so much by his performance. I cannot say enough about his career, which brings me to my next point. What could have been? Man, he's so good. Such a competent and a much better actor than probably the film deserves. And I'm not knocking popcorn, and I love it, but this guy could have, he could have been a great character actor in the 90s. Like, in fact, I think had he not been saddled with the diagnosis of of AIDS, the guy probably would have ended up being a really sought-after character actor. I mean, I could see him doing so many roles in off the top of my head in the 90s that would have been, he would have worked as much as he wanted to, but I think he could have gone beyond that. I mean, I could have seen him doing legitimate roles in films, like big-budget films, or like quality films, I guess is the better way, because big-budget doesn't denote quality always i don't say this lightly i think he could have been a top guy and popcorn maybe isn't the lasting legacy deserved but his performance is definitely not one to be ashamed of rest in peace tom villard now i don't want us to dwell on the negative so let's move on to the best part of any slasher movie the kills let's check out our victims number one Toby uses a remote control to reroute the giant mosquito prop to crash into Mr. Davis full speed. The mosquitoes proboscis it impales Mr. Davis, then slowly pulls back, only to crash down upon him again with a killing blow. I gave this an 8 out of 10. The kill isn't as over-the-top as slashers had become, but, you know, it's probably more creative then it's contemporaries, so I rank it high. I really like it. Uh, Tony Roberts, who plays Mr. Davis, was also a Tony-nominated stage actor, as well as being a hugely sought-after character actor. 
appearing in many Woody Allen films. He's actually uh, Woody Allen's friend in a lot of films, including Dick and the immortal Annie Hall. He also had roles in Serpico with Al Pacino, and he was also in Amityville 3D. Probably wouldn't put that on my action resume, but he was in it. Uh, number two on our victims, uh, Tina kisses Mr. Davis, who is being impersonated by Toby. The lips of his facial prosthetic begin to melt and stick to Tina's face. This causes Toby to reveal his scarred visage. In the meantime, Mark and Maggie come looking for Tina in the catwalk of the Dreamland Theater. Uh, they see the form, you know, sort of the shadow uh, from afar, while her lifeless body is being puppeted by Toby. Very, very uh, super villain. Um, very, very much like a Joker kill uh, right here. I, I really, really enjoyed this. Um, 5 out of 10, I'm being generous because although the sequence is really awesome, it's kind of unclear how Tina would have died from this interaction, so I deducted points. Uh, Tina is played by the very lovely Freddie Marie Simpson. Freddie hasn't had a very extensive career in acting, but she did have a major role, uh, the year after Popcorn in A League of Their Own, the, um, Penny Marshall-directed, uh, female baseball movie. Her character is... In Popcorn is severely underwritten. However, she does have a subplot of having a sexual relationship with Mr. Davis. And here's where I think the rewrite would have came full circle with all this. I think she should have been the foil to Maggie. Maggie's obviously the class pet. And I think there could have been some uneasy tension of sort of like vying for attention from Mr. Davis. Now, Maggie's character would have been non-sexual at all, but you could have had Tina's character, you know, really pressing that sexual stuff to kind of get ahead because they should have made it more of a plot point about there being money left over for who gets to do their experimental film after this, which is mentioned in passing and then never brought up again. Uh, Maggie's having these dreams and she's sort of like writing them down and doing storyboards that she wants to you know, take her dream and put it into a film. And I think that would have given a lot of motivation for Tina to kind of subvert the, the whole thing and step, you know, in front of the line by using her feminine wiles. I think this would also have uh, been a good way to eliminate the, um, the love triangle between Joy, um, Mark, and Maggie. But it is what it is. I just think from a narrative standpoint, this would have been more satisfying and allowing Mark to be a better boyfriend and um, not be the... the he could still been bumbling, just not a complete jackass. Uh, number three on our victims. While manning the control board, Bud is strapped in his chair, bound and gagged, has a chunk of his hair shaved off, uh, wet on the newly bald spot and has an electric chair halo placed on his head. Toby plugs the halo into the control board and uses this to shock members of the audience during the movie. And the positive and the negative jumper cables are they're clipped to his uh, wheelchair. Racing against the clock, Bud unsuccessfully unplugs the electrical cable and is violently electrocuted, thrown from his wheelchair, causing a power outage. I gave this a 6 out of 10. Um, the reason being is the electricity effect, they were cheesy, but in a really satisfying way. I love those uh, hand-drawn electrical things. You saw them in you know, the late 80s and early 90s movies. I, I, to me, that's way more impressive than, than CGI. It's just more visually appealing to me. Malcolm's urgency in trying to escape 
adds a lot to the moment. Uh, the, the acting is great. You can just see it all in Malcolm Denar's in his eyes. Uh, he's got a gr- good punch. Um, it could have used more gore, but I think that could probably be applicable across the board with this movie. We'll talk about about that a little bit more. Uh, Bud, you may have seen him in uh, in some films. Uh, he's uh, he's an old pro. He's dozens of great movies, uh, including Flashdance, National Lampoon's European Vacation. He was in The Curse, Robin Hood Men in Tights, Independence Day, Godzilla 1998. We won't hold that against him. He also reprises his role from that movie in the animated series. He did 40 episodes. However, Malcolm is best known for his role in Stephen King's Pinned and John Carpenter directed Christine. We absolutely love Christine here at the podcast. He plays the role of Moochie Welch, or is it Mookie? I'm kind of blanking on that. His death scene in that in that movie is fucking spectacular. He's, you know, kind of a chubby dude running down a, a narrow corridor back alley, and the, the it just keeps getting narrower and narrower, and um, Christine is just, like, scraping the sides, and sparks are going fucking everywhere, and it gets to the end, and there's a little alcove, and he's safe, but somehow fucking Christine manages to, like, you know, slender itself and just smash in there and just smushes him great fucking kill um uh with the exception of tom Lard, i think malcolm is the standout of the movie um just because he he's got a lot of personality in the little moments that you get to to stay with him and i love jill shellen she gives probably the best acting performance um other than tom but you just you fucking love Malcolm, and I'm not just saying that because he gave us that awesome introduction at the top of the episode. I would have liked more with this character. Another thing I want to say is very progressive about the movie is that he's in a wheelchair, and it's never pointed out. They don't dwell on it. It's just so matter of fact. I, I thought that was cool that it was inclusive, but it wasn't pandering because I'm going to use uh, Ghostbusters as a negative example of this. Ghostbusters Extreme has a character named Garrett, and he is in a wheelchair. And it is so preposterous of the things they have to do to make this guy viable in a situation where, you know, ghosts are terrorizing the city. And I fucking hate it. I'm not being uh, ableist or anything like that. I'm just saying that, you know, if you have a wheelchair, you can't get upstairs. And they use him properly in this movie. Uh, Much, much love to Malcolm Daynair. Uh, our victims continued. Uh, number four, Leon steps up to the urinal to take a leak, and the camera pulls back, and there is a duplicate standing next to him. He looks over in disbelief, and Toby is his double, turns his right, and he pisses on Leon's leg. Uh, before Leon can react, Toby reaches around and chokes him. He slams him into the bathroom stall. He locks the door behind him, and a blue capsule falls from the rim of the toilet into the bowl, causing a gas to be released. Gasping for breath, Leon sits on the toilet, and an explosion blows out of the light fixture above him. Um, Five out of ten. The setup is awesome, but everything afterwards is pretty forgettable. And it's not even that it's forgettable. It's just it's like, why... How does this uh, equate to explosion? And I don't know. I thought this kill uh, was going to go in a much more gross way. Um, I thought that they were, he was going to like drown him in the toilet or something, which I would have totally on board for. Um, but that's not the way it played out. I would have ranked it higher, but 
kind of forgettable. Uh, Leon is played by Elliot Hirsch. Now, Elliot only has three acting credits to his name, but he does have my f- absolute favorite line of the film. There's more social relevance and character development in Police Academy 5 than in all of Ingmar Bergman's cinematic smorgasbords. 100% agree. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, number five. After discovering Toby's identity, Mark returns to the Dreamland Theater, but the door is locked, so he has to climb to the roof to get back inside. He uses his belt to slide down the cable, the very same cable that the mosquito prop was on, and he slides down to the stage. However, he crashes into some equipment, which releases the mosquito prop from its perch. In an ironic twist of fate, Toby is impaled by the giant mosquito prop just as he killed Mr. Davis earlier in the film. 8 out of 10. The crowd cheering and the slow motion add a lot of gravity to the moment. Um, There's also to note that Popcorn was originally intended to be a PG-13 movie, but was rated R for being quote-unquote too intense, and they were too far along in the process to edit it down to a PG-13 because the MPAA did not give them any specific notes. So here's another talking point. Should this movie have had more kills and leaned into the R rating. You better fucking believe it. It It's not to say that this movie couldn't have been good as a PG-13 movie. If they had rewrote some of the stuff like I talked about earlier, they definitely could have made this an impactful, fun PG-13 movie. But it fails because it doesn't. It's an, it's an R-rated movie. And I'm not saying you have to throw a bunch of fucking bouncing titties in there, but it wouldn't have hurt. And adding a little more blood into this movie... And the kills, it's not even the kills that we got were bad, but man, considering how many extra characters we have, you could have had two more minimum kills in this movie, and it would have added a lot. So let's talk about our additional cast, and we'll talk about uh, things as we continue on. Yvette Solar playing the role of Joni. There's not much to talk about as far as Yvette's acting career. However, I've spent years of my life thinking that she was the same actress who was in Purple Rain, uh, the girl, uh, blonde-headed girl that works in the the, the club, and uh, she, you know, it's kind of like when when he plays Purple Rain, she's in tears because, like, anyway, like she has kind of a crush on the kid who's played by Prince, and they're fucking dead ringers for one another. If you put a picture one next to the other, um, they could probably pass as sisters. So I spent years thinking that she was the chick from Purple Rain, but not her. Uh, as far as her character, uh, she survives the film because of the revelation that she's in love with Toby. This is so fucking underdeveloped. It's there. It's there going back to the very beginning of the film. There's just not enough scenes to really flesh this stuff out. It does get her character uh, saved. I wish that she had played more into the ending. You could have had uh, a sort of like a standoff kind of moment where she realizes he's the killer and she's like pleading like no it doesn't have to be this way toby i have feelings for you i don't care that you're horribly scarred and then you could have had you know maybe the the gallows moment of still being him you know succumbing to the dark side and then being impaled by the giant mosquito whatever you want to do with it there there should have been more for her character she's very likable and i think she could have had a career um but you know hollywood is a fucking cruel place And not everybody gets to play. It's like, you know, going to the NFL. Just because you're great in college doesn't mean you're going to get to play in the NFL. 
So unfortunately, Yvette Soler didn't really get to have a career, but I'll tell you someone who did get to have a career, and that being Kelly Joe Minter as Cheryl. Now, you probably recognize Kelly Joe from The People Under the Stairs. We fucking love her at the podcast. We sang her praises, and when we ever do Nightmare on Elm Street 5, we're going to talk a lot about her there as well. Um, speaking of Nightmare on Elm Street 5, I'm an avid Laserdisc collector. I just got Nightmare 5 on Laserdisc, and I'm in the process of converting it to a digital form to be able to burn to, to Blu-ray. The reason this is of note is because Nightmare 5 has never been released on DVD or Blu-ray uncut, only on VHS and Laserdisc. Now, there's a tons of VHS copies out there, even digital copies that people have ripped, but there weren't a single one on Laserdisc, and I wanted the absolute best quality, so me and shout out to our uh, technical advisor here on the podcast, Jason Davis. We're in the process of getting that ready, and maybe, just maybe, I will have this available for purchase, so... Stay tuned for some announcements about that. But anyways, uh, Kelly Jo Minner, she's fucking wonderful. But uh, she really only has one scene of note in this movie. Uh, she knocks out the dude who, the bearded guy who knocked out Mark earlier in the movie. And it's just a, a fun comedic moment. This is like something out of a John Hughes movie. You know, a teenage, you know, comedy. Uh, it It's not out of place in this movie but I wish that she had more to do. So another reason that there needed to be a rewrite on the script. Uh, Karen Laurie as Joy. She plays the bitchy girlfriend. Um, my feeling on the Joy character is that she could have pretty much been completely removed from the story or combined with the char character of Tina. I kind of touched on that a little earlier. Um, I, there's really not a lot to say. Um, Heidi, very, very attractive girl. Uh, plays the role very well, but just doesn't have a lot to do. We have Scott Thompson as Bearded Guy. He's the guy who steals joy from Mark. Um, I suppose you could make the argument against eliminating uh, the Joy character simply to retain uh, the unnamed Bearded Guy getting his ass knocked out by Kelly Joe. So, checks and balances, take that as you will. Our next character is Matt Falls, who plays Lanyard Gates in the uh, the the film uh, portions of Possessor. Um, Popcorn is Matt Falls' only acting credit. However, he has carved out a niche working out in the makeup departments on many well-known films, including Fright Night 2, Cyborg, The Pit and the Pendulum, Hook, and Bram Stoker's Dracula. He also worked on Popcorn, which is how he got the job. Um, he sort of, I, I guess, had joke. Uh, joking has said uh, because they hadn't cast the role and he's like yeah I'll do it and uh, he pleaded his case to Bob Clark and he's like well, okay you can do it and that was that he got to be in the movie so that's a pretty cool little claim to fame for him aside from you know the other immense claims to fame of working in the makeup departments on movies the next guy on our uh, list uh, is a acting veteran we have Ray Walston as Dr. Minazame, and I had to rewind the movie 20 fucking times to get the pronunciation because if you spell it out, M-N-E-S-Y-N-E, -E, I couldn't fucking pronounce that with, you know, speech to text. It just, like, gurgled. <laughs> um, no other way to describe it. Ray Walson is he's a fucking screen legend. Uh, from 1954 to 2001, Ray worked consistently on projects like South Pacific, The Sting, Popeye, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Of Mice and Men, and of course, in his signature role, 
as Uncle Martin in 107 episodes of My Favorite Martian. Uh, TV Land, uh, you know, Nick at Night when I was growing up, was on TV constantly. I loved this show, as a lot of people of my generation did, seeing it in reruns. Um, they only had him for probably a few days to shoot, um, but I think the movie could have benefited greatly from his presence going into the third act. Uh, if no other reason to use him as a red herring or to add the, to the body count. When you have Ray Walston in your movie, I'm sure they paid a good chunk of their budget just to get him there. So more than likely it was a budgetary thing, but I, I even if you like used a body double to, to have him like in scenes where he's there uh, during later in the movie uh, to give the impression that he's there. I don't know. They could have done a lot more with him. So yet again, add that to the many, many list of negative things I had to say about the movie. Oh, I'll tell you one negative thing I don't have to say, and that's about the potentiality of having a drink right now. Um, I just spent 80 bucks on liquor today because I was expecting Fat Tony to come over. And uh, one of the things, by the time this comes out, uh, hopefully we'll be able to exchange gifts, but I got him a, uh, a nice bottle of uh, uh, high-end vodka uh, for my buddy because we like to drink around here at the Rents of the Black Lodge podcast. And if you like to drink, I invite you to play along with this drinking game for the movie in question, Popcorn. So what I want you to do, pop in your Blu-ray, DVD, Laserdisc, and digital copy, whatever you got, and play along. I want you to take a shot whenever a character refers to Lanyard Gates. Take a shot whenever a gimmick is used during the triple feature screenings at the Dreamland Theater. I want you to take a shot whenever someone says Possessor. And take a shot whenever something inexplicably paranormal occurs. Take a shot whenever Joni mentions something about Toby or uh, professes her undying love for him. Take a shot whenever the shock clock is shown. Take a shot whenever Toby changes faces. And last but certainly not least, take a double shot whenever Mark gets his ass knocked down or out. However, for those of you out there in the Rant Army who take your drinking a little more seriously, we have a popcorn-inspired cocktail that will send your taste buds to the Oscars. So here's your ingredients. You're going to get a cup of whiskey of your choice, a half a cup of salted caramel kettle corn, 60 milliliters of pineapple juice, 5 milliliters of sugar syrup, and 3 dashes of bitters. You're going you're gonna to take your popcorn-infused whiskey. So to do this, what you're going to do, you're going to take a half a cup of salted caramel corn and a cup of whiskey, and you're going to put that concoction in the refrigerator for two hours. You're going to strain the mixture, and if you've done it properly, the whiskey is going to be cloudy because all of the, the sugar coating on that popcorn is going to run into the into the whiskey. It's going to give it kind of a, a caramel, smooth kind of flavor. Pour all your ingredients, minus the bitters, into a shaker, and shake vigorously like a Polaroid picture. Strain the contents into a glass with crushed ice, then top with three dashes of bitters. Serve with a side of salted popcorn, but as always, please drink responsibly. I haven't tried this yet, but my interest is peaked, so I think tonight before I go to bed, I'm going to have a little bit of an Oscar party and drink it up. We've got a few uh, fan questions before we uh, close shop up, so we'll get to those real quick. 
the first of which comes from John Anderson. I'm a big fan of popcorn, and I think that it should get a remake or a reboot. Now, I know that Brandon is a big time against remakes, but I feel like popcorn could benefit from a new version. What do you think? Well, for once, you and I are in complete uh, fucking agreement. I think popcorn has the framework of a great film. Here's my uh, here's my contingency though, or my condition for it being remade, because I have I got the people who I think would best suit this film. Number one, Adam Green has to direct it because I think his his combination of horror and comedy would suit the tone of the film, but he would also punch up the fucking kills, and we would, by God, at least get a, one set of boobs in it. So what you should do with casting is have Jill Sholin uh, return to the movie, but in the role of Maggie's mom. Just a fun little nod. And Anya Taylor-Joy, you might know from The Witch or New Mutants more contemporarily. Right now she's tearing it up on Netflix with uh, The Queen's Gambit, I think it's what it's called. It's a very, very popular movie about chess, about how she's a, you know, a chess pro, but she's not really looked as as a, or a true competitor because she's female and she overcomes all that. I think it's based on a true story. All the same, she's fucking fantastic. Oh, she's in um Split. She's in Split as well. Great actress. I think that she could embody the not only the look of Jill Sholin's character, but also, you know, the gravity of the girl next door, but smart girl next door who's not going to show her tits, even though I'd like to see them. <laughs> and um, when it comes to the role of Toby, like there's nobody that uh, Tom Villard could, you know, could. there's no one who could replace him. But I think there's an actor named uh, David Neher, or Neher, I'm not really sure on the pronunciation. Um, you may, may remember him as Creepy Todd from Community. And he has this, like, you know, he looks a lot like Toby, a younger version of him. Um, curly hair, and his character is almost like uh, like he's been brainwashed by, like, uh, like a fucking cult. He never blinks, and he's always smiling. But he's a really good actor, and I think he could bring the, the, the creepy and the, uh, the nice side of him out. And he's my only choice. Those are my conditions, so if you want to remake this movie, you gotta do it right. And uh, our next questions uh, both come from Titty Flip and Travis. Does Mark get to have a threesome with Maggie and Suzanne after the credits roll? Oh, I, fuck, if I was Mark, um, I wouldn't turn that down if the option was given to me. Uh, but he isn't ba banging Maggie, so it's pretty doubtful he's gonna get them both. But I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe Suzanne's uh, kind of kind of lonely and uh, a young hunk might uh spark her fire i would i definitely would uh even today man fucking d wallace can get it especially back then very very attractive lady and his next question is is totally just sexually frustrated because the only way he can get a boner is thinking about his mother's screams while holding a lit candle to his nips fuck that's dark and yes that's the only way which actually begs the question like is because he's so frustrated because he's a virgin. And we kind of talked about this, uh, me and uh, Stingdick Eddie, when we did the Rob Zombie's Halloween, and coming to the realization that Michael Myers and Jason, they're, they're both virgins, so of course they're fucking pissed off. But 
more precisely, is his penis burnt off? And maybe this is adding to the fact that he's, he's fucking pissed off because he can't nut? I would be. I would absolutely be. Oh, man. I think that's going to wrap it up for another month. But we'll be back in February to spend Valentine's Day with the man of your dreams. And fuck it. I'm just going to go ahead and announce it. In the four years that we've been doing this podcast, a lot has changed. You know, cast lineups and formats of the podcast. And those early episodes that we did back when it wasn't my second job, um, they were labors of love, but they were done more for fun. And I know a lot about the movies that we watched, but I wasn't doing like in-depth research. And it got to a point where I was doing so much research that the watch-along format just didn't work anymore. Because if I'm going to do, you know, 20 pages of notes for something, fuck, God damn it, you're going to hear every fucking word I type out. So what we're going to do, we're going to go back and in 2021, we're going to redo a few, not a bunch, but a few of these films that deserve more elaboration. And we're going to start that in February with A Nightmare on the Street 3, The Dream Warriors, an absolute favorite, not only by us here at the Rants from the Black Watch podcast, but by you out there in the Rant Army and by the droves of horror fans all around the world. So get ready, because we're going to do it like Dokken. Into the fire! Love that song. Love Dream Warriors as well. Um, The Rants from the Black Lodge podcast can be found on a multitude of platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and Google Podcasts. So please go give us a sub right now. What are you waiting for? You can find us on social media at Rants Black Lodge. We're uh, we're finally coming up on uh, like 200 uh, followers on there. When we have 2,600 in our Facebook group, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But come on, please, please, please follow us. You get a lot of uh, updates if you're not in the Facebook group or on on the page. Check out our homepage at JuicyKruger.com and for the love of Cthulhu, go buy a goddamn t-shirt or a mug from our web store at RantArmy.com This is Brennan A. Lane, signing off. Till next month, Rant Army. Keep marching.